1: I mean, America is a country that has a problem with violence, not Black men. This is a country that commits violence in all ethnic groups in a way not matched by almost any other nation in the country. The majority of homicides in the United States are committed by white men. The majority of rapes committed in the country are white men. The majority of domestic violence, white men. People don't talk about white-on-white crime, though. So again, the narrative is only put on to Black communities. So I think that that idea is something that we have to talk about, the intersection of violence and patriarchy, the intersection of violence and poverty, as opposed to race and ethnicity. Because there is a problem with violence in our country, but it's a male problem. It's not an issue that you see from women.
2: How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Kari Lazar White. Now, Kari, you will find, is a fascinating individual who has such a passion for social change and a passion for social justice. We dive into the importance of narratives and how they shape the world we have today. His wide range and experience led obviously to the organization that you'll learn more about in the episode. But I want you to really take a lot of moments within yourself today to critically think through your why, critically think through why societies form the way it is today and think about your role in that. How do you play a role in the development of the world around you today? I think you're going to find this to be a really profound episode. I hope you share with your family and friends. And thank you so much for the kind words I've been getting on the mini episodes. Again, those are audio components of my TikTok. If you want to follow me on TikTok, I'm at Tyroxton. But for now, enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Kari Lazar-White. Now, Kari is a social entrepreneur, novelist, educator, activist, and attorney. So over 26 years ago, Kari co-founded the Brotherhood Sister Soul, or BroSis, and it's now a nationally renowned Harlem-based comprehensive youth development and educational organization. The organization provides direct service and political education to young people, trains educators across the nation on its model and organizes advanced social change. We're going to be talking a lot about, uh, you know, systemic issues today. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Kari. Thank you very much for having me, Taya. appreciate it. It's good to be in conversation with you, brother. Pleasure is mine. So 26 years ago, huh? So you decided to have this organization be created, co-founded.
1: Why? So I grew up with my childhood friend, Jason Warwin, uptown Manhattan, uh, We went to elementary school together. We, uh, you know, lost touch a bit in high school and ended up in college together. We both were very politically active in different ways on campus. You know, I was president of Black Student Union for a couple of years and kind of worked to create a, a house for Black students and students who were focusing on Africana studies and worked on some of the same kind of issues, quite honestly, in college that, uh, You know, we're still focused on today as a community. Uh, One of the big issues we're working on was trying to keep campus police unarmed because so many of the Black uh, and Latin uh, men were experiencing issues with the police on campus. And Jason was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha, historically Black fraternity. And, you know, both of us did a lot of work on campus. And by the time we became seniors, we felt we wanted to do something different. And um, we started working on the south side of Providence and in a community center that uh, was surrounded by a housing project. And they had a group of young men who were, you know, the term they use is disconnected. And, you know, these were young brothers, 13, 14, 15. They were attending a school that wasn't even accredited. Um, They were involved in low-level drug activity, truancy. And the head of the community center said, they can't come here anymore unless you guys do something with them. And so we started meeting with this group. And, you know, we asked them what they needed in life more than anything. And they said they needed a brotherhood. Uh, that's where the name came from. Uh, we started working with a group of boys and within a year, we helped them to get back in school, kind of turn around their life and, and redirect themselves. And we weren't looking to start a nonprofit. We weren't looking to be nonprofit executives, we weren't looking to, you know, kind of get into that sector. We just felt like we had to do something. And so when we came back to New York, then we decided to create this nonprofit called The Brotherhood, the social justice organization based in Harlem helping boys define what it means to be men and leaders and brothers, helping them to choose a different path. And it really was a calling, you know, much more than a job or a choice. This is what we felt called to do. Um, And so we got involved. Wow. And I appreciate you setting the table for the rest of the conversation. And the reason I want to
2: do that is because I love the focus of it being Black and Latinx folks and and the youth. One of the interesting conversations that has been happening recently, but in reality, it's been the way throughout history, is, is how underfunded, under-resourced, and the impact of police in these areas. And, you know, a lot of the arguments, whether they're true or not, would be lack of role models for this, or the unjustified narratives around angry Black person, or, you know, Latinx people only having certain narratives. And I'm curious to see what you see in the youth today, because the, the Gen Zers are are very much interested in disrupting, you know, those type of narratives and disrupting the system. But have you found anything in your work over the 26 years that we can use to combat those limited narratives about Blackness and Latinx folks that, that make it only seem like you have to be an athlete or a musician to be successful? And if you make one mistake, that means you're
1: setting an entire generational back. I don't think any any part of social justice work, uh, I don't think there's been any movements for, you know, equity, freedom, justice work in this country, in America, for Black people that hasn't been connected to narratives. There's a whole sector called, right, the, quote, slave narrative, a misnomer of how you call it. But what was that? Those were enslaved people, Harriet Jacobs, Frederick Douglass, telling the story, claiming the narrative, right? This was Sojourner Truth saying, ain't I a woman? Claiming the narrative. So you've never had justice and freedom work in this country without saying, actually, we're going to claim the narrative. We're going to have ownership over the stories we tell of those who are enslaved, whether it was Du Bois and Marcus Garvey talking at the turn of the 20th century about, you know, really what does freedom look like in this country for black people? And they were having a conversation black man to black man, lots of differences of opinion, but they were having those conversations you look at Fannie Lou Hamer, you look at people like Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells was a journalist who used the written word to talk about lynching from a different perspective and bring light to it. And just one other example I'd use, even if sometimes people didn't think of it as intentional, you know, you think about the civil rights movement and leaving aside for a second the, the many, the millions of folks who were just racist, virulent racist, who didn't want freedom for black people in this country. There were also a lot of people who were ignorant. And the civil rights movement made a decision to put children in front of dogs and hoses and those iconic images of children being hosed and having dogs attack them is a narrative conversation there was yeah. a decision made to do that so i think it's really important we talk about who's creating narratives this idea that black folk are you know just making music and there's nothing wrong with making music nothing wrong with that too yeah <laughs> <laughs> playing ball nothing wrong with playing ball yeah. you know, played play a lot of my life and it's all great and all good Should. right but There are other ways that black folk in this country have been successful since black folk in this country first arrived here. The narrative is being put from the dominant control of the narrative as opposed to the true narrative. Yeah, that's one example of that. Like this idea that, you know, somehow doing well in school is, quote, acting white. We've seen that, you know, reported left and right. There's nothing blacker than going to school. What was revered more in the Black community than teachers? Historically, Black colleges and universities were founded because our community thought it was so important. Right. So that's buying into this false, dominant narrative as opposed to us claiming narrative. You know, the narrative that you're speaking about is, is white supremacy.
2: And so I'm, I'm from Nigeria, but I grew up Black on four continents. Born in Nigeria, grew up under dictatorships. Then my dad was a diplomat. We moved around a lot. And I, you know, being Black on four continents, the world reacts to me very differently. And, you know, I remember coming here and having people obviously confused by my my heritage, but also surprised by my ability to speak English. I remember being back home in Nigeria, also the the division that happens, which is a remnant of colonization where we're fighting amongst ourselves because white supremacy and colonization is that divide and rule. And then I also remember even when I was a kid, wanted to actually have lighter skin because I thought this was me at 10 years old thinking it is and my mom had to basically talk sense to me and at all these conversations about hair and these are the things that happen at the youth level i remember before being a teen which is why i appreciate your program where there're so many narratives that already dictate what professionalism is success is what beauty is what acceptance is what masculinity is what femininity is and it becomes perpetuated <laughs> when we don't have enough people pushing back against narrative or on a narrative which is what you're doing with your organization but My question then is, how do we make sure that that continues to happen? And it's not just, you know, an instant. You know, how do we make that
1: moment or these moments momentum and movement? I think it's interesting you talk about, you know, your childhood and growing up on four continents, but also being Nigerian. Uh, You know, one of my closest friends is Nigerian, Igbo, his children are my godsons. You know, we talk about the fact of this duality, right? There is on one level this pride of being Nigerian or being Yoruba or Igbo. And some of the difference of growing up in a Black country as opposed to growing up in a predominantly white country, and yet the effects of colonialism that were so rampant on the continent, and so issues of color, issues of hair texture, you know, the skin bleaching that's rampant on the continent, you know, the ways that folks still wanted to aspire to a white ideal and a white ethic, those two things kind of, you know, almost, right, you know, butting heads with each other. Right. And so everyone has experienced it because of white supremacy. And I think there's a misnomer at times that people think about the African continent or black countries in the Caribbean and don't realize the damage that colonialism did. And, you know, so many written about it and we know that, and, but many others don't really focus on it enough. And so when you ask what we can do to claim narrative, I think the first thing is to look back to understand what we are pushing against, the level and depth of narrative that we're pushing against, of the dark continent, of Africa being subhuman, of Black people from the Caribbean and the United States being subhuman, that we still see today about us being violent, about us being aggressive, about us being less than smart. I mean, the the idea that those are things that continue today in 2022 speaks to the depth of what we're pushing back against. So once we recognize that, I think it speaks to the totality of what we have to do. The level of claiming narrative, whether that's films, whether that's the written word, whether that's music, whether we're always thinking about how we represent ourselves. And again, there's also a danger on that side, right? We're not going to just be beautiful and be perfect. We're also going to be ugly. We're also going to have bad days. We're also going to do things that are embarrassing to us. But we're in a position where we have to realize that that is still the narrative we're pushing back against. And so I think we have to look at it from a, holistic perspective this idea of narrative 100 percent, and you do that with your organization
2: because you have we have educating you have training educators you have organizing for justice and one thing i love about what you're saying is it isn't black and white it, there has to be nuance in the black and latinx community where you can extend grace for bad be- behavior in some in- instances and that doesn't mean all of a sudden that's the definition of all that and you know i've always hated the narrative of when someone famous does something that people have respected for a little bit. And then they're like, Oh, you set back black people for two generations. And I'm like, what Why are we acting? Like there's only one person or we can't do that. Right. So I always feel like that's actually centered whiteness in my opinion, because who are we, what do we
1: doing? We yeah. No, go ahead. I mean, obviously it's very relevant given the Oscars right now. <laughs> that's what I was about to say. So think about the fact you have two, two guys who are, millionaires, probably one of them's got hundreds of millions of dollars in in Will Smith. And this incident occurs if a white actor went on the stage and slapped a white comedian, all of white America would not feel that represented them or they had to speak to it. Right. And so, you know, I think part of that reality, you know, when bad things happen and folks in the black community say, God, I hope it wasn't a black person that kind of reality is is because of how we have been birthed, the communities we've been raised in. And so again, it's not that that's false, that is true. true. But I think one thing that's happened in the most recent, probably 10, 15 years in media, and obviously most recently over the last five to six, has been a much wider, successful reclaiming of different identities of Blackness. I think that this is something that goes up and down like a heartbeat. I actually don't think it's always been a valley. So when you think of hip hop, And you think of the hip hop community that, you know, for me at my age that I came up in, you think of hip hop in the 90s, there were many different images of what black manhood could be. You had De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest. You had what was called, quote, gangster rap. You had Five Percenter and Conscious Rapper, Poor Righteous Teachers or Rakim or KRS-One. Then you hit this period where all of a sudden Black men in rap had to just be kind of hardcore and tough and gangster. So we had this period where there were lots of representations of what Black manhood could look like. And then we hit another valley where all of a sudden there's just this one idea of how you were supposed to carry yourself. I think we're in another place now where you see a lot of diversity around what Black manhood means now that's inclusive of different um, sexual orientation and inclusive of gay men and yes. inclusive of folks of different I- gender identity and inclusive of the diversity of the black experience that it's all around the world. And to your point, multiple continents. I mean, just what you spoke of, that that is also the story of a black man, right? It's yeah. not a black man only born on the South Central or born in Alabama. It's a black man who's lived on four continents and behind him in his room has, you know, a Nigerian flag and a, you know, Lakers jersey, right? That both (laughs) things are who you are.
2: Yeah, it it does. Yeah, LeBron jersey there. But look, personally, I'm a a huge fan of both of them, Will and and Chris. But what I felt, and I know a lot of Black people felt, was just sadness because I already knew what was going to happen. But I thought that it also opened up the conversations about protection for Black women, what it means to have grace, how you, you, then on the other side, like, oh, this person didn't react and all these things. And my hope is that as we're examining these layers here, the society starts to understand just what can happen when you start deciding people are in boxes. Because the great thing about your programming, which is what I want to transition to next, is this idea of mentorship and rite of passage. When we're mentoring youth and we're providing rites of passage, when people can see themselves reflected in multiple range of ways where they feel free to make a mistake and understand the level of accountability and what that can come from growth, the way they feel like I can be a business person or I can be an athlete and a business person, or I can be a musician who decides to go back to school. I think that's so important because then we're going to be able to extend the conversation and have a more nuanced idea of like, all right, that person did this. I'm not going to define that person as that and that person didn't do that. So. Talk to me more about that rite of passage and
1: why it's important in your organization. I mean, I think you, you raised at the end of your comments a central piece of our approach to this issue. And, and also, you know, I was talking about in the end of, of my previous comments about different ideas of what Black manhood or Black womanhood is. This idea that you can be who you want to be. You can be strong and gentle. You can be soft and tough. You can be intellectual and ratchet. You can be, you can, you can be into sports or into video games or whatever is something that's seen as, as not very intellectual. And then be somebody who wants to, you know, read the great novels, you know, created in our time. Like you should be able to be complicated and diverse. And that's what we're saying to young people. No one should determine the kind of man or woman that you should be. And so what we say is you define it. You define what it means to be a man and a woman. Unifying what it means to be a leader and a brother or sister in the way that you want to define it. We're going to push you on it as we educate and guide you. You might say something that on its face seems fine. I believe a man takes care of his family financially right? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what happens if you've got a job on Friday and you get let go and you don't have a job on Monday? Did you stop being a man on Monday because you lost your job? Of course not. So (laughs) we're going to ask you those questions to get you to really think about what are your core ideas. And then we're going to ask you to write a personal oath of dedication. This is a step that most adults have never taken. So not just defining externally, but internally, what's your journey? how do you want to live your life? What's your moral and ethical code? And you're going to spend months thinking this through writing it under our guidance. And then you're going to present it in an oath of dedication ceremony to your peers and your educators so that you're standing on your own two feet as a 12 year old saying what you believe. And then you're doing it again at 14 and then 16 and then 18. And so for all those years, you're going through this process of redefining your personal ethical and moral code, but also thinking externally, this is how I want to walk through this world. This is what my life is going to be. And I think that's a
2: great point that you're making where you're saying many people in different groups, the Black community, Latinx community, aren't afforded the same, that same range of action. And so where someone can be justifiably angry at something without being seen as scary, you know, and someone can have to sit down and Listen to abuse, verbal abuse, because we don't all often call that violence, but that's a form of verbal violence, and expected to take it down and, and take it without you know, responding. and if you take it without responding, you're seen as professional. But what are we defining as professionalism for different groups and different people if we don't allow range for different people? This happens in the NFL. this happens in multiple areas. You know I, I live in a building where people have literally been afraid of me in the elevator. Because, you know, maybe I'm wearing a protective head wrap or something, or I have sleeveless shirts and, and it's like, whoa, this person is scared of me. You can see it. But in my head, I'm like, don't say anything. Just keep it, <laughs> keep it there because you're going to cause more of a scene than is worth it. And I think that's part of the conversation that needs to happen when we talk about policing, for example. You know, when we talk about all these things that happen in schools where how do we protect in black and brown kids and black and brown people if we don't allow for range of emotions that
1: other people have. Yeah. I mean, you have a reality where, you know, two things can exist in the same space, right? We have to talk about the fact that in this country, there's an intersection between poverty and physical violence of a certain kind. And there always historically has been when the face of poverty were immigrant Europeans, right? You had, you know, violence and gangs that were associated with the Irish and the Italians and others in this city. Um, when you have people living in quote unquote ghettos and concentrated economic poverty, there is a type of violence that you see more in those communities. It's not the province of black or brown people. It's tied to an issue of poverty. We can talk about that and we can talk about those realities and then also talk about what is violence. I mean, is violence invading a country? Right. Right. Is that violence? Because last time I checked, it is. Are wars around the world violent? I mean, America is a country that has a problem with violence, not black men. This is a country that commits violence in all ethnic groups in a way not matched by almost any other nation in the country. The majority of homicides in the United States are committed by white men. The majority of rapes committed in the country are white men. The majority of domestic violence, white men. People don't talk about white on white crime, though. So, again, the narrative is only put on to Black communities. So I think that that idea is something that we have to talk about, the intersection of violence and patriarchy, the intersection of violence and poverty, as opposed to race and ethnicity. Because there is a problem with violence in our country, but it's a male problem. It's not an issue that you see from women. <laughs> right? there's, there's very little Physical violence perpetrated by women in our country. Sure, it happens, but small numbers. So if you want to talk about reducing murder and rape and violence in our country, remove men from the picture. So what you're getting at is an issue of patriarchy, not an issue of race. And that's where I think the framing has to really change, because that's the only way we'll ever deal with the obsession of violence in our country, whether it's the, quote, cowboy slaughtering indigenous people, but celebrated in our films, or the objectification of black folk or Latin men as violent as gang members or whatever, there is an issue with violence that is celebrated in this country. You know? Yeah. I mean, even the, 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 most popular shows and movies, you know,
2: it'll be a, a drug Lord or something. And I, I, I often wrestle, wrestle with that because when the protagonist is framed as someone you should root for, like, Oh, that person did this, to this person, you better get that person back. You know, you, you hear the narrative the next day it's like, he was a sucker. He let, he let him do that. You need to go take care of that. And it's so um, problematic because you can see how that can create this idea of masculinity and, and protecting when you can protect in other ways and when you can actually unpack emotions. So what you do is you provide access to mental and nutritional health resources, which I'm, I'm assuming helps a lot of people unpack what mental health is and discuss what emotions they feel, and then the food aspect is also a big, uh, plays a big role in, in the health in
1: general. I mean, you know, just uh, about six weeks ago, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report that there is a mental health crisis with young people in our nation. Uh, two years of COVID have been debilitating for all of us, Um, The strongest adults struggled during COVID, the vast majority did. If you already were struggling with a mental health issue, if you already were on medication, if you already were struggling with depression, it was a very, very difficult time due to the isolation. But I think especially for young people who lost their school environment, their social environment, you know, if you're in your 30s, you know, you've lived a substantial amount of years already. If you're 12, 13, 14, and you lost two years, it feels like your whole life right? You have much less to to revert to. And so there is a crisis of mental health in our country. It was there before COVID. COVID broke something open. It didn't create it. Part of that is the lack of mental health support, right? If you break your leg, if you get hit by a car and you have insurance, your leg will be taken care of. In most states, even if you don't have insurance, if you're hit by a car, they'll take you to a hospital, at least give you some basic level of medical support, most cases. Um, But what happens when you're having a mental health crisis? As bad as our physical, you know, insurances and taking care of people physically in this country, it's horrific mentally. There's no mental support for young people. And so for us, we felt it's critical to provide social workers and guidance counselors, mental health support, 24-7 access. We've had young people call us who are thinking of hurting themselves or already hurting themselves or facing crises. And our staff show up to provide support, to help adolescents navigate through what is a very difficult time. Again, most of us had difficult times during our adolescent years, and then some are having times where they're hurting themselves or thinking, you know, having suicidal ideation. We need there to be be there to support young people. We need to talk about the intersection of what you eat and how you bring things into your body, affecting your state of mind and the connection behind mind, body and spirit. It's really a holistic program that seeks to provide, yes, crisis support, but what are we going to do before the crisis? What are we going to do to help you learn skills and approaches to navigate trauma? Because we're all going to have trauma in our life. We're all going to have difficulty in our life. What are the skills to navigate that? And That's another piece of what we do. uh, That's so beautiful. And I love that. So how can people get involved with with what you do? So Brotherhood Sister Soul, um, you know, first, you can obviously learn more about us online. And, you know, go to our website at brotherhood org. You can follow us on social media or on you know Twitter and Facebook and IG at brosys512. 512. Uh, 512 is our building address. So we've used that for a long time. Um, you know, we really feature a lot, the voices of our young people. So you can hear their, their voices, through films we've created back to the beginning of our conversation about narrative. We have alumni who have, who are making films, you know, two of our main filmmakers are uh, black man, Jamari Pyatt, graduated from our programs, gone on to be a filmmaker. Frank Lopez graduated from our program, gone on to be a filmmaker. Now they're telling the stories of our young people and putting their voices front and center. So you can, you can use those materials. Um, you can get involved as a mentor or a tutor with us. And certainly there's volunteer opportunities and folks can register for that. We always need people to support us financially, and we appreciate contributions to continue our work. You know, we work in the intersectional space of educating. We've talked about that a lot, but also training and organizing. And our training, we have programming based on our model as far as Brazil and Bermuda. Uh, We've trained over 3,000 educators around the country. So we're doing deep dives right now in D.C. and Boston, helping educators in those cities to institute our work there. And then the third area is organizing. We are a justice organization. We work on racial justice and gender justice, criminal justice, educational justice, and environmental justice. We work to shut Rikers Island, to raise the age, to legalize marijuana, to increase guidance counselors and mental health providers in our schools. So on the organizing side, you know, we're a part of that movement. We need allies. We need partners. We need people who, who want to work with us and alongside us towards a world of more justice. Kari Lazar-White, thank you so much. This is
2: it's, I think it's interesting to hear you break it down the way that you, you're doing, it because I, I, I was watching a lot of your interviews before I hit record with you. And it's clear that this is a, a very big passion project for you. But one of the things I love about how you break it down is you're just asking people to look at the society that we, we've created and, and just really dissect it in a way that they can, you know, see how they participated in. Perpetuating systems of oppression, because sometimes when the narrative, we keep talking about narrative exists out there, people are so quick to saying, oh, you just want an easy way out or it's not a problem. It was 400 years ago. Get over it. But not a lot of people are actually willing to sit with the simple things like mental health, how you see yourself, how you choose to react and the consequences of reacting, you know, which in many cases is death. And then what happens in a family once that exists? And then the generation after that, people don't think like that, unfortunately. But I-, I love how you encourage people to do that. Thank you, man. I appreciate that very much. The pleasure is mine. So I have one final question for you. And that's my mission statement reframed as a question. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So, Kari, how do you use your difference to make a difference?
1: So I feel that um, for me, I've been brought to this work from family. I come from a family that was very involved in the civil rights movement, the labor movement the women's movement, people who went to jail for their political beliefs. I feel you know, very fortunate that I had a very unique upbringing around activists and artists and organizers and people who sought to do this kind of work. It made me feel in certain ways unique um, because I come from a family deeply committed to these issues. And so what I felt was it was my responsibility to take that family legacy, that family history, how I was raised and for it to inspire my work to do justice work. Every single day inspires me, you know, to help people understand what this country is. To your last comment. This country can be both things. It can be a country where there is a credible opportunity to build your life and to have an independent life and to really build a stable life. And it can also be a country that's continues today to be rife with racism, economic exploitation, and lack of opportunity. Both of those things can exist. And this idea that somehow it was 400 years ago is a complete misunderstanding of economic realities and housing realities and banking realities and issues that that low-income people face in this country. And you can identify that. And also, as we do, teach young people that you can overcome that and build a long-term stable life. Both can coexist.
2: Love it. Thank you so much. I'll make sure to put Everything about brother, brotherhood, sister, soul in the, in the links. And thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been uh, truly enlightening. Absolutely. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for the time. Likewise. Kings, queens, and royalty. Till next time, use a difference to make a difference.